So Joshua 10, and we'll start in verse 16. But these five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings are found in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll great stones upon the mouth of the cave, and set men by it for it to keep them. And stay ye not, but pursue after your enemies, and smite the hindmost of them. Suffer them not to enter into their cities, for the Lord your God hath delivered them into your hand. And it came to pass, when Joshua and the children of Israel had made an end of the slaying them, with a very great slaughter, till they were consumed, that the rest which remained of them entered into defensed cities. And all of the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda, in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then said Joshua, Open the mouth of the cave, and bring out those five kings <clears throat> unto me out of the cave. And Joshua went up from Eglon, and all Israel with him unto Hebron, and fought. Oh, sorry. Um, got my. Uh, got my. Uh, got one page missing here, so I need to look it up. Verse, um, verse 22. Um, yeah, verse 22. And he opened the, the mouth of the cave and brought those five kings unto, unto me out of the cave. Verse 23. And they did so and brought forth those five kings unto him out of the cave. And the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, and it came to pass, when they brought those kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war, which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and be of good courage, for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. And afterwards Joshua smote them and slew them and hung them on five trees. And they hung until the, upon the trees until the evening. And it came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded. And they took down off the trees and cast them into the cave wherein they had been hid and laid great stones in the cave's mouth, which remained until this very day. And that day Joshua took Makeda and smote it with the edge of the sword. And the king thereof, they utterly destroyed them and all the souls that were therein. He let none remain. And he did to the king, and he did to the king of Makeda as he did unto the king of Jericho. And Joshua passed from Makeda and all Israel with them unto Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord delivered it also and the king thereof. Unto the hand, into the hand of Israel, and he smote it with the edge of the sword, and all the souls that were therein. He let none remain in it, but did unto the king thereof, as he did unto the king of Jericho. And Joshua passed from Libna, and all Israel went with him unto Lachish, and encamped against it, and fought against it. And the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel, which took it 
and which took it on the second day and smote it with the edge of the sword and all the souls therein, according to all he had done to Libna. Then Horam, the king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua smote him and his people until he had left him none remaining. And from Lachish, Joshua passed unto Eglon and all Israel with him, and they encamped against it and fought against it. And they took it on that day and smote it with the edge of the sword, and all the souls that were therein he utterly destroyed that day, according to all he had done to Lachish. And Joshua went up from Eglon and all Israel with him unto Hebron, <clears throat> and they fought against it, and they took it, smote it with the edge of the sword, and the king thereof, and all the cities thereof, and all the souls that were therein, he left none remaining, according to all he had done to Eglon, but utterly destroyed it utterly, and all the souls that were therein. And Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to Debir, and fought against it, and he took it. And the king thereof, and all the cities thereof, they smote them with the edge of the sword, and utterly destroyed all the souls that were therein. He left none remaining, as he had done to Hebron, so he did to Debir. And to the king thereof, as he had done also to Libna, and to her king. So Joshua smote all the country of the hills of the south, and of the vale, and of the springs, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed, as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua smote them from Cades Bedera, even unto Gaza, all the country of Goshen, even unto Gibeon. And all these kings and their land did Joshua take at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, unto the camp of Gilgal. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again we come to your word, Lord. We read this passage and we think of the war, think of the bloodshed, think of the, the slaughter that we see here, Lord. Father, help us to look at it with your eyes. Father, give us a sense of your holiness, your greatness, your wrath, and of a judgment that one day we will all face. Father, would you help me? In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. So last time we looked at the miraculous defeat of the armies of these five kings. Uh, you recall that they had made a coalition against Gibeon. They thought that Gibeon was the traitor in their midst, and they thought, well, we're going to teach them a lesson we're going to make an example of them that none would join with Israel like they had done. And the Lord again showed himself powerful to his people and mighty. But also, most notably, he was extremely kindly dealing with Gibeon very graciously. We recall how the Gibeonites had deceived them into the pact. Uh, they were foreigners, they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. But yet, the moment they asked Joshua to come over and help us, former enemies as they were, the Lord now fights for them. And Joshua risks his life for them and his people. And so does the Lord fight for us if we trust in our greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus. 
And with hailstones that were directed only at the enemy, the lengthening of the day, Israel defeated the armies in this battle. Remember how Joshua called upon the Lord and said, Sun, stand still. The Spirit-led prayer, as we heard this morning, and it said, there was no day like it or after it that the Lord listened to a man's voice. Talk about calling upon the Lord in prayer. And the Lord fought for his people Israel. And that's a theme throughout Joshua, if you probably have noticed. So now we are in the remainder of this chapter, and that is the, the southern half of Canaan. So I've got three points I'd like to highlight. First, the king's sudden end. Second, the battle remains, and three, back to Gilgal, and the major point will be the first one and the second one. So we have come to know these kings in the beginning of this chapter. They are the ones that combined their forces up against Gideon, and they so picked a fight with Israel and with the God of Israel, who the Gideons had that security, they had that covenant they signed, and uh, Joshua signed for their security. And we see that they had great faith and hope and trust in Joshua at this point, that they asked for help from him. And so as it is with all those who are calling upon the Lord, you know, he's willing and able to save us. And, and even here, Joshua, as I said earlier, at the risks of his own life. Now, these kings are not like Joshua. You see that when they're losing the battle, these kings are hiding. They hit themselves. They're not like Joshua with his people in the battle, in the midst of it. But they fled as a, a fivesome. Imagine the fear that were now upon these guys, upon these kings. Upon these five powerful kings, they had reigned in powerful cities. And uh, their armed forces were always around them. And now they were hiding in a cave, like scared animals. No doubt, engraved on their mind, was all they had seen that day. Imagine the sun not going down. The day was lengthened. The army of Israel was successful every time they fought against any of their soldiers. And the hail came down just on them, not on any anybody else. They had witnessed the power of God probably um, unlike few people had all these miracles in one day and maybe they finally understood that some supernatural strength was, was happening here. They're in their cave. What good were their kingdoms now? What good were their proud plans? What good was their riches, their castles and their lands, their cities? as the great judge of the earth now zooms in on them. As he does with all of us, isn't it? Good questions to ask for us. They had gone into war with those that had made peace with God, and now the wrath of God is coming upon them. It's chasing after them. It all looked like a good idea to combine forces against God, against Joshua the anointed of God. But, verse 16 starts out and it says, all five of them are, and it reminds me of, of, of these five kings of a verse in Revelation, Revelation 5, 
15 and 16. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every freeman, hid themselves in dens and in the rocks of mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. For that great day, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? It was, of course, not possible for them to hide from Israel because the Lord, as we see, fought for them. Notice in verse 17, Joshua was informed about these kings and the Israelites were still going after their enemies. So he ordered large stones to be placed on the cave. He was going to deal with them shortly. This was their hiding spot had now become their prison, as it were. And he ordered his people to continue to pursue the enemies. Likely all those that had shown up to go against Gibeon were now being pursued by Israel. Lest, he said, some of them will go back into their cities. Notice he tells his soldiers a promise from the word of God that he had been encouraged with many times himself. The Lord will deliver you, your enemies, into your hand. The victory <clears throat> that is coming is a, is a gift from God. Know that. He says, know that before you enter into this battle. Seems Joshua staying there for a while. He said, the gift, it's a gift from God. That battle, you've already won. And in that way, you fight. The comfort that he had received previously, many times in the early chapters of Joshua, he now gives as a prophet to his people. Similar, the Apostle Paul, when he had received comfort and mercies from the Lord, he likes to give that to others. He said, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforted us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. He did not keep it to himself. He was eager by way of testimony and the word to pass it on, to pass that comfort on to others. For us too, isn't it? Comfort that we have received in our tribulations, in our struggles, we always should be able to comfort now others with it. That it would be useful for others. And God and Joshua reminded his soldiers of this. And he steers them up with the word of God that he had been so often encouraged by. Last week, Pastor Paul preached from Second Peter 3, where Peter writes, I now write unto you in both which I stir you up, which I, with the words, sorry, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure words, your pure minds by way of remembrance. So he's calling them to remember, to be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the com commandment of us, the apostles and of the Lord and Savior. He reminds them of all the promises in his word to stir up as we heard last week. Verse 20 tells us that they were 
they were slaughtered. The enemies were slaughtered by the Israelites. Yet, a few managed still to escape into the fence cities. But overall, they were soundly defeated. And some of them would be dealt with later, as we see in this chapter. It's the same with us, isn't it, in our spiritual battle on this side of eternity as we battle the flesh, the world, and the devil. When it comes to our sanctification, we may have great victories over sin. And yet, sometimes they again rear its ugly head, trying to defeat us. And that battle, and we'll talk more about that later, will last until we are in glory. In verse 21, we see that um, all of them came back. All of the soldiers came back. Not one of them was killed or went missing. And they're going back to Joshua for further instructions. And it says, None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. We find a similar expression in Exodus 11, verse 7. It comes to the Israel and the Egyptians. And it says, But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against men or beasts, that ye may know how the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. Meaning was that there was no opposition. No one dared to speak against the God of the children of Israel. Fear of all the miracles that they had seen and the great slaughter they had witnessed was upon them. Spiritually speaking, it's a great picture again of the Lord Jesus Christ who will lose none that the Father has given him. Not one of his sheep will be lost. And if one wanders off, he'll take him back into the fold. We see here, and in a few verses, in, in, especially in John 6, all that the Father has given me, none will be lost. The obedience of Christ to his Father's will, to redeem those that by election have been given to him, and that all those will be raised up in the last day. And as I said, none of them will be lost. What an encouragement for the believer. None of his sheep have ever been lost, has ever been snuck out of the Lord's hand. The Son of God loved them, and he gave himself for them. He paid the price of sin, absorbed that wrath of God there on that cross, that I don't have to go to hell. He went into that dark cave and was buried there for us. He rose from it. Sin was paid, and his resurrection proved that it was. Death could not keep him there. And yes, life will have its trials and tribulations, as Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians 11. He speaks about his labors and his many beatings, his imprisonments, his sufferings. He was in trouble in, on the waters and on the lands and from his countrymen and so forth. He was not spared these things. Yet he turned them into praises. And as a means to be more dependent upon the Lord in his sufferings. Not all his thorns would be removed this side of eternity. What did he say? Second Corinthians 12, verse 9, he says, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
Therefore, I take pleasures in my infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake. For I am weak, that for when I am weak, then I am strong. Christ will never lose any of his people. And all, as we see here in verse 21 and verse 30, uh, 43, are going back to Gilgal and will be united with Joshua. In verse 22, we see that Joshua has, uh, has covered that, that stone with uh, the guard and, the, and the, 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 the cave, sorry, with the stones and with the guards so that they could stay in. They, of course, had witnessed that long day of Joshua and were probably now seeking darkness. The sun remained and they saw darkness. What a picture of, of a sinner who loves darkness rather than light. So his sins would be exposed. Blinded in their mind, do these kings actually think that they can hide from God after all they have seen? How sin blinds us. How it makes us stupid. They had witnessed the wrath of God in a spectacular fashion. Perhaps they were thinking too, well, we just got lucky. You know, all five of us, look at this, all five of us escaped. Maybe the gods did something for us. Maybe our royal blood kept us safe. Perhaps that's you this morning, young and old, trusting in your own cleverness, thinking that God does not see it, thinking that although you have clear evidences of God around you like these kings had, that somehow you will escape the judgment, that you will not be found. Or maybe you think like King Agrippa who said, well, come over at a more convenient time when he heard the gospel. Maybe you think I'm older perhaps. I'll start thinking about these things. Or the danger of hardening our hearts and not listening to the gospel call. Remember these kings. Well, God had something more in plan for them, hadn't he? It would be more public. It would be more memorable for the people that were there. And we see that in the death of the Pharaoh as well, don't we? In the days of Exodus, Pharaoh was spared himself from the plagues. He didn't die there. But he dies a very public death in the ocean for all to see. He foolishly rushes headlong into judgment, thinking that he could still somehow, after all the miracles that he had noticed, that he could still take the Israelites back. Oh, how sin darkens our mind. Think of Haman, the evil plan that he had made for others. And Mordecai came to a sudden and dramatic end when he was hung himself on those gallows that he had made for others. Well, the cave was opened, verse 21, and the kings were brought before Joshua. And imagine the sight of this and the fear that must now be in them. They've been there for a day and a half. It's a dark cave. There's no electricity, so it's dark, cold, and they're waiting their certain doom, their certain judgment. All that they had previously trusted in, that would be there to help their family, 
Their armies, their riches, their false gods were now out of reach. It's a very bleak picture, isn't it? And that picture is still the same for us because it's the same condition that we face outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, outside of his work. The nations, or the five kings that we see here, are appearing before Joshua. Likewise, one day all nations will appear before the Lord Jesus. And he will gather the nations and they'll be judged by him. He'll separate the sheep from the goats. All enemies will be made his footstool. And one day every knee shall bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. So Joshua uses here another encouragement for the people. And especially in the case of the captains of the army. He calls them to come forward and to take a good look at these kings. He makes them lay down on the ground. And he puts, he has them put their foot on their neck. This is not just so they can be machos and say, look at me. But it is to imprint on them the mighty work of God. That's a very solemn sight, isn't it? It's for the captains, for the kings, whose life now is but a few moments away from ending. Their power is gone, and their threats to the nations have been eliminated. What a picture of that great day, when we shall appear before God as well. And these kings are finding out that it is a very fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Picture here is of God's full dominion over his enemies. He's crushing the serpent, as it were. Paul writes to the Romans, he's in 16 verse 20, he says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Picture here the great sovereignty of God, his powerfulness over all his enemies. Psalm 118, the psalmist recalls these battles that he himself has fought. He said, it is better to trust in the Lord than put confidence in princes. All the nations compassed me about, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They compassed me about, yea, they compassed me about, but in the name of the Lord will I destroy them. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. I opened up this morning with the call to worship from Exodus. It's a song of victory. But people died in that, right? But it's a song of victory. It's a song of the strength of God and how eventually all enemies will be put under his feet. And with this act, those captains putting their feet upon their neck, it would no doubt be a lasting picture. It would be very memorable, memorable for these people all around looking at this. They would never forget it. Verse 25 again, Joshua says the word that he'd been told so many times. He says, fear not, be not dismayed. Be strong, be of good courage, for for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom you fight. He says, see, look at this. Have I not told you? Have I not told you what the Lord told me? 
Look under your feet. This day, his word is once again proven right. If there was any doubt left after the miracles, his promises are secure, his promises are ever true. Your dirty shoes are on their royal necks. Joshua is always make sure to point out, of course, that the victory was from the Lord, not with him, not with his own ideas or battle plans, but with the Lord alone. And so these kings, their lives come to an end. They're killed, probably killed by the sword, and are hung for all to see until evening. Similar of what we had seen in the, the king of Ai, and now they are displayed for all to see to the people of Israel. Cursed is everyone that's hung on a tree, Deuteronomy 21-23 says. So they were. And they were taken down at night, as the law commands. You see that even in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, the rush of victory and in the, the joy of victory, Joshua obeys that little detail. He takes them down at night. And notice again, another memorial of stones in this book. This is the fifth memorial, if you're counting, that is there on public display. The nation must not forget what the Lord has done. And when they saw it, they'd be once again be reminded of God's faithfulness and the folly, the utter folly of those that would go against him. <clears throat> they are buried in the cave that they sought to hide in. The cave has now become their grave, the place that they put their trust in for a little bit fell, turned out to be their grave. Apart from God, everything else we put our trust in will fall apart, will disappoint us. And in their case, it sealed their death, didn't it? Now, with the next sermon, I hope to dwell a little bit on the attribute of God when it comes to his wrath. It's an attribute of God. It's one of his perfections. It's a good thing. And it is, as we read this story, we see that attribute of God, don't we? His holiness, his wrath, and it's good to meditate upon it. Meditate for our sake so that we know the seriousness of sin, our own sin, first of all, and that we would serve him rightly. Our God is a consuming fire, serve him with godly fear, but also that we would remember where we have, for believers this morning, where we have been uh, escaped from. He's delivered us from wrath to come. Point two, the battle remains. From verses 28 and onward, we see once again that uh, these kings were not the only ones that were there. There were still other battles to fight. Now remember that Moses had been commanded that if you go into the land, you must drive out the inhabitants thereof, one city at a time. It would take time, but it was a divine commandment. It was the law of God. The wickedness of these nations had reached to its fullest, and now their days were numbered. <clears throat> we will not look in detail at every battle here, uh, of all these individual city battles that I read. In some ways, uh, they are the same. 
as we saw. Uh, but there's just some general observations. If you know, you notice the speed in which this goes. You know the you notice the success that Joshua has in these battles. Some of these cities, their kings has just died, and the armies already had suffered great defeats, so there probably wasn't a lot of soldiers left. And we see some of them had uh, already new kings, but they also came to an end. Their death was sure. <clears throat> now, with AI and with Jericho, we have an individual chapters devoted to it, and here we've got a rapid succession of seeing uh, how they were captured. So maybe there were many miracles in those cities too. Maybe walls collapsed as well. We, we're not told in detail. But we see six towns being decimated in a good time and not a single battle was lost. Because, 40, verse 42, the Lord fought against Israel. And there, once again, reminded that it's done quickly because he was their captain. Verse 33, we see the king of Gezer trying to help out one city. But in that process, he got decimated himself. With some, there was a siege around the city. But with all, the results were the same. There was victory. We see with one city, Lachish, it took an extra day to win. They needed some extra time and effort, perhaps. And we are reminded <clears throat> that even though there's a sweep throughout the southern region, it took effort, it took sweat, it took tears, it took planning, and it had to be done. They obeyed the word of God. They weren't sitting around and said, let go and let God, as we hear sometimes people say. There was planning, there was praying, there was wisdom needed. Think of the logistics of moving around an army when it comes to food and water and weapons and, and so on. In other words, there was work to be done. And they have been told in Exodus 23 that bit by bit these nations would be driven out. And as we look at the rest of Joshua, it would take a number of years for that to be done. Also keep in mind the age of Joshua at this point. Joshua is around 80 years old when he's in the midst of this. Age didn't diminish his resolve. He was still the commander of the army. He was there leading the people, encouraging them right in the midst of it. But it was hard work. And how true is that in the life of the Christian, isn't it? The battles against the flesh and the world and the devil is real, and it will last as long as we live. No vacation can be taken from it, especially when it comes to the battle of our own sin. Later on in the book of Judges, we read that some of these southern area are reoccupied, repopulated by some of these Canaanites. <clears throat> Our sin is like that. We may, with God's help, have had great victory over a certain sin and thought, well, this is it. It will never come again, only to see the beginnings of it. And thought, word of deed, against, again in our life. The book of Joshua is a great picture of the Christian life. The Christian has entered into the promised land. He's gone over the Jordan. That picturing baptism, what it points to, 
that finished work on the cross, that newness of life in Christ. They came out of slavery, Egypt, a picture of sin and misery and death. But sin is also warring against the new creature and seeks to hinder our walk, seeks to slow our holy duties or our good things that we do. The Christian has many promises, though, when it comes to his security in Christ. There's free and there is full forgiveness. He's been called, he's been justified, adopted, he's been raised and glorified in Christ, and there's no more secure place in the world than there. All things are ours in Christ. You have it already, Paul says, and the apostles say that many times. In one sense, we are like the thief on the cross. Today we are with him in paradise. We have that secure in him. We are buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And ye, and you being dead in your sin, and the uncircumcision of the flesh, he hath quickened together with him, hath forgiven you all your trespasses once for all. We're already there, in a sense. Yet, there is the not yet, isn't it? There's a battle that has started ever since we are coming into the kingdom, ever since the new birth. Peter writes about it when he said, you know, there's abstain from fleshly lust, fleshly lust, which war against the soul. And we find that. He calls us to resist it, fight against it and that's a lifelong task isn't it Paul writes let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey the lust thereof neither yield you your members as instrument of unrighteousness unto sin and that comes back to us again and again and we see that the call to the mortification of our flesh and that battle is real you think of what Apostle Paul talking in Romans 7 speaks about that personal battle that he had. Talks about who shall deliver me from this body of death. You know, the Apostle Paul, when he spoke about his external things that happened to him, all of the sufferings that he, he um, uh, <clears throat> suffered, he did it for the glory of Christ. And as we just read, but when it came to inward sin, he was horrified by that thought. That's how he thought about it. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform it to do, to do which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil that I would not, that I do. All throughout the New Testament we hear that these things and John Owen summarized it when he said do mortify do make it your daily work be always at it while you live seize not the day from this work be killing sin or sin will be killing you probably we have those kings in our lives that need to be killed that need to be hung that we need to mortify <coughs> But we are most miserable 
when we do this, when we are not born again, when we're outside of Christ, we cannot do this. It will be a miserable failure. We might succeed in looking good in the outside, but the end, in the end it will be failure. We'll become Pharisees. There's no real chains on the inside. We need to be in Christ first. And then and only then do we have a successful battle against it. Trusting in him, trusting in his word. As JP and Nick spoke about, about prayer, calling upon him. We drive out the remaining sin that so easily besets us. He, Christ, is a victor over sin and death. And he bruised the serpent's head. But we need to have crossed over in that gospel land first. And after that, we have all the sympathy from our great high priest that there is to be found. He intercedes for us. We also heard that this morning by his Holy Spirit. And he sanctifies us. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. And he helps us on the path to that celestial city. So never turn that around. Battle our sin without the work of Emmanuel, who saves his people from our sin. Lastly, very briefly, look at these last two verses of this chapter. After all the battles, the miracles, the gaining of the land, see that it occupied the land, they actually are going back into Gilgal again. It's that very place where it all started. That's their place of their initial landing in this land. There they renewed the covenant. They celebrated the Passover for the first time in a long time. And notice again that all of Israel was there. Not one of them was lost. They're there with their great captain who had been there with him through the thick of it. What a great model they had. And what a confidence and faith in God he had shown. There in Gilgal, of course, was the tabernacle, the holies of holies, that once again pointed them to the Savior that Joshua was a great picture of. There will be a rest for a little bit, but in the next chapter, there's another alliance forming. There's another trouble brewing. Perhaps that's been your life lately. One battle after another. One death or sickness or discouragement after another. With that, let us remember and recall the words of the Lord Jesus. In John 16, verse 33, he says, These things have I spoken unto you that it, spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And believer, we've got great reason to be of good cheer. Our sins are forgiven. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to a heavenly land. Oh, our Savior has overcome the world. And no power will rise against it. Satan, 
the world, all the sins and allures of the world will never be able to cause us to fall forever. Christ had started that good work in us and he will finish it. May we rejoice in that this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word once again. Father, we thank you that you fight our battles for us. Father, this morning I particularly think of the battles that we all face when it comes to our own sin. Father, would you help us to seek you when we battle those sins? Father, help us to recognize them when they are temptations there that are sinful, that are wrong. Lord, help us to depend on you and your spirit. Father, help us to encourage one another church as a body we don't fight these battles alone but that we would depend on one another to fight against them and we thank thee lord that we stand alone upon that great finished work of our lord jesus father we finish thank you for his high priestly work for us that he ever lives to intercedes for us lord i pray for anyone here this morning that is fighting sin but is outside of Christ. Lord, help us not to get cleaned up before we go to the Savior, but help us to come to him for forgiveness, for cleansing, and for that sanctifying power. In his great name we pray.